We will be in the book of Proverbs just two more times after this morning, Wednesday night and again next Sunday, and we'll complete this book. been six months studying through this. And though we will talk about uh, a section out of chapter 31 next week, um, I really consider this to be the final teaching. If I could switch the order, swap it around. I think I'd put this one last, because I think what we're going to talk about this morning is truly the summation of the book of Proverbs and what we've studied. And I'll explain that as we go. Chapter 30, Proverbs chapter 30, beginning in verse 1. The words of Agur, the son of Yakeh, the oracle. The man declares to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukal, Surely I am more stupid than any man. And I I heard an amen. Who said that? I'm quoting here. I'm not speaking personally. Surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. Father, as we look at these few verses... Lord, I, you're speaking my language, you're speaking to my heart. And I pray that you will increase knowledge of the Holy One. Holy Spirit, we, we need you to even understand these things. And Spirit of God, I pray that if there is anyone sitting here this morning who does not have a relationship with you through Jesus, that today would be the day. I keep praying that, Lord. I keep asking. And we will continue to pray and ask that. And I keep praying and asking, Father, that You would send us out, that You would put us in contact with people who don't know Jesus as these days wind down, as we know the end of all things is so near. Lord, we want to be used by You. Use this fellowship. Use this church. Use this barn on Sunday mornings and Wednesdays. Use us in our lives that we might introduce people to the very one about whom we're going to talk today. We love you, Lord. Bless the study, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. There's an old saying that goes, a word to the wise is sufficient. By the time we finish our study through the Proverbs next Sunday, we will have covered 915 separate individual Proverbs. That's a lot of wisdom there. And so I wonder, I want to begin by asking you all a question this morning. Do you feel wiser? Do you feel like you've made any headway in the area of wisdom and understanding and knowledge and the fear of the Lord? Proverbs chapter 1 verse 5 tells us a wise man will hear and increase in learning and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. Proverbs 22.17 tells us to incline our ears and hear the words of the wise. Apply your mind to my knowledge, for it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, that they may be ready on your lips. One thing we do know about the Proverbs of Solomon is that they contain more than the Proverbs of Solomon. We've already talked about that there are many wise men's sayings listed in this book that Solomon not only wrote, but also compiled the sayings of wise men. Proverbs 24-23 says, These also are the sayings of the wise. And we don't know who most of these guys are. Only Solomon 
We don't know who these sages, these wise men were who jotted down these things, spoke by the Spirit of God, these wise sayings that we have gleaned wisdom from or are sought to, to learn wisdom from. But as we come now to the climactic conclusion of the book of Proverbs, and it is a climactic con- conclusion, it's an amazing last couple of chapters. If we had stopped at chapter 28, it, we would have just said, yeah, book of the wise. But you add chapters 30 and 31, and we come to some astounding Astounding truth. But here we are at the very end and suddenly we're introduced to two people. Which is unusual. Usually at the end of a book, a movie, a play, you don't meet new characters, but we meet two of them. In chapter 30, a man named Agur. And in chapter 31, a king named Lemuel. We'll talk about Lemuel next week, but this morning, this man named Agur. Chapter 30, verse 1, the words of Agur, the son of Yakeh. Now, the name Agur means collector or gatherer, one who gathers. And some of your Bible translations might even not even list his name. But it is a name. This gentleman's name, Agur, one who gathers. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 8 tells us the ant prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. That's the Hebrew word agar, which is the root word of the name agur, the gatherer, or one who gathers. Proverbs 10, verse 5 says, He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely. And so here we have this name, agur, which means gatherer, probably because he gathered wisdom. He gathered, collected these thoughts of wisdom. Now what's interesting is, if you do a little study into this, the old Jewish synagogue tradition teaches that this agur is actually Solomon. That it's a pen name for Solomon, that he used this name to kind of hide behind it to write some of the things that he wrote. They teach this, they believe it because Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1 says, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. So if these are the Proverbs of Solomon, they reason, then Agur must just be Solomon. Well, the problem is, a couple of problems with that. If Agur is actually Solomon, it says Agur, the son of Yakeh. Well, who's Yakeh? Well, if it's Solomon, son of David, then Yakeh must be David. But Yakeh means blameless. And I don't know that Solomon would name, pen name his father blameless. You may recall Solomon was the second son of David and Bathsheba. David was far from blameless, certainly a man of God. A man after God's own heart. One who loved God and God loved David. But as a great encouragement to us, David was not blameless. So I don't know that it could be David. Some have said, well, maybe Yahweh isn't a name but a description. Maybe Solomon's saying, I am the gatherer, the son of blamelessness. That's a little pompous. Sounds a little arrogant to me. And besides the fact that if he's saying that I'm a gatherer, that would fly in the face of the Jewish tradition that Solomon wrote all of the Proverbs, because if he's a gatherer, and he gathers some of these Proverbs, then he didn't write all these Proverbs. And the more I looked into this, the more my head started to hurt. Because there are so many different possibilities of where this could go and what these names could mean and who they might be. Listen, in your study of the Scriptures, more often than not, the most simple, literal, obvious answer is usually the right one. Now, learning what the meaning of a name is or looking into the background of things can help broaden and make the picture more colorful, but the simple truth is right there. It is not that hard to understand. Scripture was not written to confuse, but to reveal God to us. And just because the old rabbis taught something 
You know, I, I can be guilty of this, saying, well, the ancient rabbis say, and we go, oh, well, the rabbis say it. <laughs> that lends some weight to it, right? Or perhaps we could say a, a conservative commentator presented this thought. We say, oh, wow, if Matthew Henry said that, or Kyle and Delich, well, those are some big names. They have to know what they're talking about. Just because Pastor Rick says something <laughs> doesn't mean it's correct. Usually is, but doesn't always mean <laughs> that it's correct. Listen, we have one rabbi to whom we listen. One rabbi. By whom, through whom, and about whom this entire book is written, Rabbi Jesus. He's our teacher. He's the one we go to. He's the one who brings explanation. And He's also the one who said in Matthew 23.8, Do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. So back to this Agur. Rick, who do you think Agur, the son of Yakeh, is? You want to know? I think it's Agur, the son of Yakeh. <laughs> Just a guy. A guy who received an amazing prophecy. By his own admission, as we've already heard, he's a simple man. He doesn't think much of his intellect. And he's suddenly surprised by the burden of a prophetic word from God. A, a burden? What do you mean burden? It says the words of Agur, the son of Yakeh, the oracle. The word oracle there is literally, it's masa in the Hebrew, it means burden. It's a burden. The heavy word, the weighty prophecy God has given to this man. It's a burden. <clears throat> Have any of you ever been burdened by a word from the Lord? Burdened by something you realize God is saying or indicating or pointing you toward in your life? A burden. Sometimes prophecy is burdensome. Sometimes it's, it's heavy. I mean, ask Isaiah, who God required to walk around for three years stark naked. I am so thankful that the Lord has never put that burden on my heart. As I'm sure you are too. He spent three years doing this. As a warning to Egypt and to Cush, this is where you'll be. You'll be stripped, you'll be bare. If you don't turn around and repent, Jeremiah had a burden, a burden for Israel. Please turn around. Babylon's coming. You will go into captivity. No one listened to him. And Jeremiah sat on the Mount of Olives, writing the book of Lamentations as the temple and Jerusalem burned to the ground. A burden. Daniel was a burdened prophet. There in Babylon, he was on his bed, literally sick on his bed for three weeks because of a prophetic word that God gave him. Sometimes the prophecies are hard to take. Hosea, here's a nice one, had to go out and fetch his prostitute wife and bring her home. Another burden I'm appreciative that I don't have to deal with. <laughs> the prophets of Scripture, gang, were just people. Sometimes we can elevate them. Isaiah, well, he was just a guy with a great burden on his heart. Jeremiah, a man like you, like me, who struggled in life, lived life as a human being, but was given God-breathed, Spirit-led information to pass along. And oftentimes, the things the prophets spoke, they didn't even understand. God said, write this down. Okay. And they're writing it, and it confused them. They didn't have what we have. They didn't have the benefit of the New Testament commentary on the Hebrew Scriptures. They weren't able to look back and, or look ahead. And they struggled with these things. Sometimes they wrote down questions they didn't have the answers for. Or statements 
that they couldn't possibly have even known what they were saying. Peter says, as to our salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. I love that verse. Talk about a powerful verse. That says the Spirit of Jesus was telling the prophets about the coming of Jesus. He was indicating to them how it would be, Bethlehem, the birth, and growing up there in Nazareth, that he would come out of Egypt after they ran and fled to Egypt from Herod and came back and all the prophecies fulfilled there. How he would die, the manner of his death, all these things Jesus told the prophets to to say about him, and the prophets didn't know what they were talking about. They guessed this is Messiah, but what does this mean? And they struggled with these things just like Agur. He pens Proverbs 30. He's a simple man with a heavy burden who asks all the right questions. Now, I'm going to tell you something I didn't say first hour because I didn't realize it. I ran home and and looked something up because someone asked me a question. It says, the man declares to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukal. Okay, so we have Agur talking to Ithiel and Ukal. And that's the simple explanation. And probably, probably likely, that Agur is talking to these two men. They may be his sons, they could be pupils of his, perhaps students, perhaps friends of his that he's talking with about these things. But the names are so interesting. The name Ithiel means God with me. Which is similar, in a way, to Emmanuel, God with us. Could Agur have been crying out to God with me? The name Ukal means one who prevails. A mighty one who prevails. And who is Jesus? But God with me, the one who prevails. So perhaps, perhaps, what's going on here with Agur is he's crying out to God with me. He's crying out to one who prevails. He's seeking understanding and he's asking questions. And he asks all the right questions. The words of Agur, the son of Yaqeh, the oracle, the man declares to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukal, surely I am more stupid than any man. And I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the the knowledge of the Holy One. Now, I'm not sure that's the best way to promote a pamphlet on prophecy. (laughs) You know, to start out by saying, now I'm an idiot, but pay attention to what I have to say. You may know about that about me, but I don't often share that at the beginning of a sermon. Listen, I'm a total moron, but i got something to share. <laughs> I'm a doofus, but here's some wisdom for you. But that's how he begins, and it's a cry of the heart. Let me ask you all again at this point. Do you feel wiser than you did six months ago? Have you made headway in the direction of wisdom and understanding of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. I want to tell you something that hit me like a ton of bricks this last week. I wrote the question because I thought, oh, that's a good place to start. I'll ask that question. And then as I considered the question, I realized something I didn't expect. I have not learned wisdom in the last six months. Let me say that again. I have not learned wisdom. Jonathan Edwards once said, He that has much grace apprehends much more than others that great height to which his love ought to ascend. And he sees better than others how little a way he has risen toward that height. 
true grace is of that nature that the more a person has of it, the less does his goodness and holiness appear. In other words, it is those who are most humble, most aware of their sin, most recognizing the fact that they are not worthy of Jesus who recognize the larger amount of His grace. If you think you're pretty dialed in, pretty much in good shape, a pretty good person, you don't really know much about God's grace. But the more of His grace you know, the more humbling it is. Charles Bridges put it this way, the nearer our contemplation of God, the closer our communion with Christ, the deeper will be our self-abasement before Him. Isn't that true? The closer you get to God, the more humbling the experience. The more you understand God, the more you recognize truly what a wretch you are. And the more I seek wisdom, the more I realize I do not have wisdom. The more I realize I have not learned wisdom. And that's the key word. When I say I have not learned wisdom, I haven't. Have I grown in wisdom? Yes. Have I learned it? No. Because I can't make headway into the wisdom of Christ. You can only make heart way by faith into a relationship with Christ. And it's a totally different thing. Which is why you have great theologians in the world who understand Scripture and know how things are tied together and where things happen and geography and archaeology and all the background of it and no faith in Jesus. Because you cannot make headway with this. If you are trying to figure out your faith, you'll never get there. If you're trying to study your way into Jesus, you'll never understand. I have not learned wisdom. I've grown in wisdom as I have grown in my relationship with Jesus. I I, I relate so much to Peter. Like Agur, these guys just say, I'm stupid. On my own, I don't know. I don't have the answers. Peter blurts out there at Caesarea Philippi, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my Father who is in heaven. You didn't get that. It was given to you. And all the wisdom of Christ is not something learned, studied. It's something given. And we cannot, listen, we cannot become wise until we are willing first to become or to at least recognize that we are wholly foolish. Agur says, I'm stupid. I haven't learned wisdom. And then he goes on in the rest of the chapter to make some absolutely profound statements. Prophecy and truth. Because the wisdom that flows from Agur's foolish lips is not his own. It's not what he's learned. It's what he's been given by the Spirit of Christ Jesus. Keep your finger there and turn over to 1 Corinthians just for a moment. Because Paul understood this as well as Agur, as well as Peter. And so should you and I. The first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, he's writing to this church in Corinth who's pretty proud of what they've established and done and accomplished. Pretty sure of their mentality, their intellect. And Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I'll set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish 
the wisdom of the world. Boy, that verse right there. America 2011. Where's the wise man? Where's the debater? Bring them on. God makes them foolish because they think they're so wise. For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who what? Believe. Not study. Not gain headway. Those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Word to the wise, you are not that wise. For consider your calling, brethren, verse 26. I love this. That there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. God has chosen the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts in the Lord. God has chosen the barns of this world to nullify the cathedrals. Will you look around you for a minute? Let me just tell you, this is absolute foolishness. It's ridiculous that we're all sitting here in a barn having church. And yet, and yet, I, I got here this morning, sat down, and someone had stuck this. I love this. Stuck this right here on top of my Bible. It says, Barn Sweet Barn. I'm going to hang it up right there over the door, right back there. Barn Sweet Barn. I love it. God always does that. He chooses the things that, what? Are you serious? You're going to do church in a barn? That's just stupid, huh? And I was just the guy to do it. (laughs) The foolishness of man, God loves to use that. Because then, guess who gets the glory? God does. Guess who's honored? God is. Guess who's praised? Jesus Christ. And not man. Well, Agur, back to chapter 30. He was spot on. He starts out from the place of foolishness. We are foolish. And we are called to make heartway into the Lord, not headway. And he doesn't say that he doesn't have wisdom. He says he hasn't learned wisdom. But there is one thing that Agur says he does not know. He has no knowledge. Watch this. Nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. The knowledge of the Holy One. When did Agur write this? Well, this guy probably existed at the, at the earliest, or the most recent, 700 years before Christ, 2,700 years ago. That would be the earliest. Perhaps it was later, back in Solomon's day, a couple hundred years before that, 900 years before Christ, 950. Maybe back before that. We really don't know exactly when he wrote it. All we know is it was included in the Proverbs. But we do know that he wrote it at least... 700 years before Jesus came. So when he says, I have no knowledge, I do not have the knowledge of the Holy One, (laughs) he's right on. Agur did not have what you have. He didn't have what I have. And that is knowledge looking back to understand the Holy One. 
And so he asks five questions. Five questions in verse 4. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. And that's not a sarcastic surely. He's not saying surely you know. He's saying tell me if you know. He asks these penetrating questions and says, tell me if you know the answer. Because the answer to these is absolutely critical. The answer to these questions is the answer. And this is the cry of a heart that wants to know God desperately. So let's look at the questions. Question number one. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Well, we've ascended. We've gone up. We've built rocket ships. Fired them off. We've sent men to the moon stupidly. Foolishly. Because that was something way beyond what we should have been doing at that time. I think it's still way beyond what we should be doing at this time. But you remember the scene, if you've seen Apollo 13, when Apollo 13 was in serious trouble out in outer space and they're trying to figure out how to, how to give them the right trajectory so they can fire the engine and get back on course. And it shows all the men there in mission control, you know, with their big screens in front of them. And they're trying to figure out this trajectory with slide rules and pencils and paper. And we got guys in outer space? It's ridiculous. Why did we do it? Why did we send men to the moon? I'll tell you why. We were looking for our origin. Go get moon rocks. That's what we need. Rocks. <laughs> they wanted rocks. They should have called me. Come to my property. There's plenty of rocks. I'll give you rocks. They went for moon rocks so they could study them and try and figure out where it was that we came from. We could have saved them a lot of trouble. In the beginning... <laughs> was God created the heavens and the earth. There you go. It's right there. And that's why we went. But the further out we go, the more we see that the universe is continuing to move further out. The universe is expanding. Even as I sit here speaking with you all, the universe is getting bigger. <laughs> That'll freak you out, which means we're getting smaller. What is going on here? Now, I, I, I'm not a great thinker on these things, but I, I find it interesting. Einstein's theory of relativity, which that theory, by the way, has been proven time and time again, many, many times over. E equals mc squared. And I, I had an understanding that I think actually was a little faulty. I, I talked with Ray Rimps this morning, and Ray was an astrophysicist at one point, so he, he knows what he's talking about. But I, I used to think that it meant as an object approached the speed of light, that it expanded, which would mean as the faster you go, the more you're expanding until you explode, which is why we couldn't go the speed of light. And I thought, well, great, that explains my weight gain. I'm just moving faster now than I did a few years ago. <laughs> you know. But that's not what it means. The theory of relativity means, in essence, that if you could go the speed of light, once you reach that moment when you were going the speed of light, if you could do that, instantaneously... From your perspective, it would seem like you were everywhere at once. What does the Bible say? 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, God is light. He's everywhere at once. That's pretty astounding. And that's something science kind of figured out. But here's my point, gang. The universe is expanding. God is light. 
the universe itself, even creation, Paul says, is groaning in expectation. The very created world around us, the universe around us, expanding almost in this expectation of, of going where? Going to God. And I use that as a picture for every single one of us that we are drawn to the knowledge of the Holy One. We are drawn to ascend. We want to find out. Where do we come from? What's our source? What's our origin? We're drawn to that. Everyone hungers for it. Oh, people might not put it that way. But it's what drives every human being. Trying to figure out, what am I doing here? Where am I going? What's the point of all of this? Of all this? And Agur asked the question, who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who's gone up and come down? Who could tell us about that? And we might say, well, Enoch, right? Because he ascended and... Oh, but he didn't descend, so he's out. Uh, Elijah! Fiery chariot, up he went. He ascended. He hasn't been back. Agur saying, who has been there and back again? Other than Bilbo Baggins, who has been there and back again? You know? And Agur's question remained unanswered for at least 700 years until Jesus said, John 3.13, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The answer to question number one is Jesus. Who has ascended into heaven and who has descended? Keep your finger there. Go over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Apostle Paul writing about this descending of Jesus and the ascending of Jesus. And he gives a marvelous explanation that's rather mind-blowing. In verse 7, in Ephesians chapter 4, he's talking about the body of Christ, fellowship of believers, and how we're supposed to be unified and how God has given us gifts to function together as a body. But he says this, track this with me, verse 7, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, and he quotes Psalm 68.18, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? And he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. What's that talking about, Paul, after Jesus died on the cross? Three days between death and resurrection, what happened? In those three days... I believe what Paul is indicating here is Jesus went down. He descended into the lower parts of the earth. What, the earth's core? No. (laughs) Hades. He went down to Sheol, down to Hades, down to the abyss, to to the place where the spirits of people went who had died. Up to that point. What did He do when He went down there? Well, a couple of things. Number one, He preached to a captive audience. (laughs) <laughs> Literally. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which, Peter says, also He went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. What? Don't you love those verses where suddenly you read them and realize, like a gore, you're stupid? <laughs> what? What are you talking about, Peter? He's talking about Jesus going down in that time 
down descending into the depths and preaching to spirits disobedient in Noah's day. Still, what? I don't think he's talking about people here, gang. I think he's talking about fallen angels. Talking about demons who had some business on planet Earth and were part of the reason that God had to flood the world. And if you want to find out more about that, Revelation chapter 9, it's on the website. Go listen to it because we talk about that in depth. But Jesus went down to, to speak to these Fallen angels, these demonic spirits. Why? Second Peter chapter two verse four. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell or Tartarus, which means the deepest abyss, committing them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Jude in his little letter, verse six, said, "Angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day." And I think again, these demonic spirits were involved in the reason for the flood. Jesus went down. What we do know is He descended. We do know that He spoke to these disobedient spirits. We don't know exactly what He said, but we can guess. The crucifixion was over. Jesus on the cross said, It is finished! It's done! What was finished? The righteous requirements of God. Fulfilled in Christ. Perhaps He went down and He told these disobedient spirits, your hellish authority is null and void. You no longer have power over anybody who puts their faith in Me. You now are toast. You're history. And these people whose sin are washed not by a flood, but by My blood, are now untouchable by you. Again, to research that more, go listen to the study in Revelation chapter 9. He descended and preached to a captive audience. But He also ascended. Coming back up out of there, He led out of Hades what Paul calls a host of captives. When He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. Well, who are these people that He led out of there? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And that's who I believe Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4.8. He led captive a host of captives. Those who were captured by death, who could not be in the presence of God until the sacrifice was paid by Jesus. Like Abraham. Remember what Paul said? Romans chapter 4, he said, he said to Abraham it was credited as righteousness. What does that mean? His faith. God said, Abraham, you believe in me, I'm going to give you a righteous credit. Hold on to that. It's your coupon to get out of hell. <laughs> it's your coupon to get out of Sheol, the place of the dead. Because there was only one option, gang. If you died before the redemption of Christ was paid for on the cross, you could not go and be in the presence of God. Perfect light. Perfect holiness. Couldn't be there until the sin was paid. But once that debt was paid, suddenly now those who died in faith, their spirits could go be with the Lord. Which makes some more sense out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that says those who died in faith, the Lord will bring with Him Because their spirits are with Him now. And so, Jesus let out this great host of captives, perhaps Adam and Eve. Seth. Those of the lineage of Seth who called on the name of the Lord, Genesis chapter 5 tells us. Or or Noah and his wife. You know what his wife's name was? 
Mrs. Noah. Noah and the Mrs. And Abraham and Sarah. And Isaac and Rebekah. And, and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and Ruth and David right down the line. All these people who died in faith, but not covered by the blood of Christ. Not yet. And yet when Jesus died, the payment was made. And all the coupons could be placed. All the way down to the last person of faith to die at the crucifixion of Jesus, the thief on the cross. Don't you love this guy? I cannot wait to meet the thief on the cross. That was me! You know? I'm the one who got hung up on a cross and I was stealing stuff. And Jesus saved me. Do you remember the conversation? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Luke 23, 42. And He said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now only Jesus could answer Agur's first question, who has ascended into heaven and descended? And He answered it fully and remarkably. Question number two. Who has gathered the wind in His fists? <laughs> you remember that night in the Galilee when Jesus was awakened by His freaked out apostles. The storm is raging. He stood up in the boat and looked around and just said, Hush! And the wind stopped. And the apostles <laughs> verily, verily were freaking out. And they hit the deck and they say, What kind of man is this that even the wind obeys Him. Agur asked, who has gathered the wind in his fists? God. Jesus. Power over the wind. Controlling the wind. And by the way, in the same conversation where Jesus says, no one has descended but Him who ascended, no ascended but Him who descended, the Son of Man. In that same conversation, Jesus said, John 3, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, that you do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And I really like that because when people say, well, Rick, you're a quick Christian. You know where you're going? Ultimately, yeah. Well, does the Lord tell you what you're doing tomorrow? No. I don't have a clue. I have no idea, should the Lord tarry, what I'm going to be doing next year. Or five I don't. I don't know. I don't know. But what does this tell you? It tells us that all we need to know is Him. Because He knows. If I know Him, it doesn't matter. Because He knows where I'm going. He's got it down. Question number three. Who has wrapped the waters in His garment? The waters. The Scripture often uses water as a picture, or the control of water as the picture of the sovereignty and power of God the Holy One. Genesis chapter 1, verse 9. God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters He called seas. And God saw that it was good. And in that moment of creation, God did something that mankind has never been able to do. Gather the seas. <laughs> we don't have that kind of ability. We don't have that power. Genesis chapter 6 through 9, describing that massive worldwide flood, by the way, the evidence of which geologically is irrefutable. This world experienced a worldwide, corner to corner, over the entire planet flood. And scientists know that. And it is proof positive of what the Bible said happened. Job 38, verse 8, God says. Who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? 
Psalm 104, verse 6. You covered it with deep, with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. That your rebuke they fled. That the sound of your thunder they hurried away. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, the prophet says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Amos chapter 5, verse 8. Who darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is His name. And haven't we seen this in recent years? If you were God, thankfully you're not, but if you were standing outside of space and time, how would you get the attention of these rebellious, foolish people on this little planet? Perhaps by using creation itself. And we have watched this take place from the wind and waves of Katrina that, that toppled those levees with it as an unstoppable force. The Indonesian tsunami, the Japanese tsunami, even our Midwestern floods, we are seeing water out of control. And Jesus said the time would come when men would be perplexed by the roaring of the waves. And I believe God is using these things, getting our attention, and Agur asked the right question. Who has wrapped the waters in His garment? Prime Minister David Cameron? President Obama? You know, Angela Merkel? Are these the ones who have got... Only one. Only one answers question number three. And by the way, this idea of controlling the waters. Wisdom is not just about the power to discern. Wisdom is also about the capacity to control and to manage. And that's significant for us because to grow wiser does not mean that your head gets big and full of knowledge, but to grow wise means that you will grow more self-control. Wisdom is control. It's funny, I mean, isn't that where a lot of us struggle? I can have all the head knowledge in the world, but (laughs) self-control? I have enough trouble controlling myself, much less the waters and the winds. But true wisdom is played out in that way. The ability to control even creation, the wind, the waters, the very earth itself as God does. Question number four. Who has established all the ends of the earth? Agur is crying out. Who has done this? The answer. I need the answer. Who has established all the ends of the earth? Psalm 24 verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. The world and those who dwell in it. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Paul says in Colossians 1.16, For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He's before all things. And in Him all things hold together. Which means if Jesus were ever to let go, we would be in trouble. Because He holds it together. He is that nuclear glue. We've talked about that. The strong nuclear glue. That's what scientists call it. The reason why in the center, in the nucleus of an atom, the protons, the way they are charged, should not stick together. They should blow apart. Every atom should blow apart. But it doesn't. It sticks. Why? Scientists call it strong nuclear glue. It's Jesus who holds everything together. You see what's going on here? Agur the prophet is asking questions that can only be answered by one person that can only be fulfilled in one. And that brings us to question number five, which is breathtaking to me. What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know.
What would cause Agur to ask what the name of the Son of the Holy One is? And yet he did. 700 years before the recognition of the Son of God. And we knew that, you know, Isaiah prophesied, a son will be given to you. Perhaps Agur heard that. But it's an amazing question. What is his name or his son's name? And suddenly the simple Agur becomes the profound prophet. The amazingly wise man asking, what is the name of the Son of God? Why is he profound? Because of this. And listen, this is why, to me, this is the concluding teaching of the book of Proverbs. Because wisdom, knowledge of the Holy One is discovered only in Jesus. Isn't it remarkable that for all of our studies through the Bible and all of our all the teaching of God's Word, the verse-by-verse study, we keep coming back to the same place again and again and again. Jesus. Here I am at 46 years of age and I have come back around to realize He is the only answer. Jesus is the answer of all things. He's the answer of all the questions. He is the answer of Scripture. He gives us knowledge of the Holy One. That's what John said in John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Agur said, what is His name? What is His Son's name? And so God put on flesh and walked among us. That we would know Him. So we could say, what makes God cry? Look at Jesus. What breaks God's heart? Look at Jesus. What would make God laugh? Look at Jesus. What does God care about? Look at Jesus. What does God enjoy? Look at Jesus. What mattered most? Look at Jesus. He is the knowledge of the Holy One. Hebrews 1 verse 1 tells us God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us through His Son. Do you feel like a gur? Do you at all feel more stupid than any other man? Have you ever sat there in, in a Bible study going, I don't know what He's talking about. I don't get this at all. Or maybe you cracked open the Bible and you've tried reading and, and you know you've read the same paragraph four or five times, going, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. I want to get it, but I, I feel I feel like I'm less. I'm not as smart. Other people must be. Do you feel like try as you might, you just can't learn wisdom? Listen, God made it absolutely simple. I think we're trying too hard. If we're not getting it, we're trying too hard. We're making it more complex than it really is. Turn over to Romans chapter 10, and we'll finish there. Romans chapter 10. While you turn there, I want to read to you the background of Romans chapter 10. It's Deuteronomy chapter 30. Because Paul is about to quote from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Listen to how it reads as you turn to Romans 10. For this commandment, which I command you today is not too difficult for you, Moses says. Nor is it out of reach. It's not in heaven that you should say who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it. Now Moses says, the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. 
Deuteronomy chapter 30 is the end of the law. It's the very tail end. Moses has spoken all these things. He's written all these things out as God told him to. 613 unique different commandments. And at the end of everything, he says, it's not difficult. It's not out of reach. Now, had you had I been sitting there when he said that, I would have gone, maybe for you. I can't even remember what I had for breakfast, much less 613 commandments. And Moses says, no, it's not that hard. It's actually pretty easy. What are you talking about, Moses? He's looking ahead. And Paul grabs hold of this. In fact, it's the end of the law. Moses is at the end of the law. And Paul quotes from the end of the law. And he says in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. What's that? Religion. Verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Christ is the end of the law, which means, listen, no more religion. How did we miss that one? Christ is the end of the law. No more religion. No more churchianity. No more wearing yourself out to to try and be wise when you know you're not. Jesus ascended and descended. All we need to know is Him. He is wisdom. And if we know Christ, then all this other slop that we get into is meaningless. And it truly is. I, I, you know, I get excited about this. I, I told the kids yesterday, I'm so glad I get to show up in church in blue jeans. Because it wasn't always that way for me. There was always this expectation of how you have to look and how you have to behave and how you have to act and the things you have to do and to be more righteous in the church, the ministries you have to be involved in. And it's religion, pure and simple. And Jesus is not a religious guy. Never has been. Christ is the end of the law. And so what Paul is saying, and he's drawing off of Moses, is you know, you don't have to get spiritually high to bring him down. You don't have to go esoterically deep into the mysteries. Both directions are the stuff of a religious spirit. Listen, it is just as religious to be hyper-spiritualistic about everything as it is to be ultra-legalistic about everything. Both are religion. Now, typically, when we talk about legalism or religion, we think, oh yeah, it's just keeping all the laws. It's also going in the other direction and getting out there. You know, and, and, and strange spiritual, just getting, oh, I need to go, I, I need to go beyond Jesus. Jesus is great, but I knew him in Sunday school. I need something else. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't have to descend into the mysteries. You just got to get into a relationship with Jesus Christ. What's his name? 
What is his son's name? Tell me if you know. Ironside wrote, The trembling, anxious sinner is pointed by the Holy Spirit not to church or sacraments, not to ordinances or legal enactments, not to frames or feelings, but to a risen, ascended Christ seated in highest glory. And that's the wonder of it all. The same ascended Christ, Messiah, Savior, is very down to earth. He has a name. What is His name or His Son's name? He has a name. Jesus. Jesus. It's common. In the Hebrew, Joshua. Just a common name. You know how many people were named Joshua when Jesus was named Joshua? Yeshua? I mean, there's nothing about the name that would be special except for what He did. And except for what the name means, God saves. So if you want wisdom... And and please, don't stop studying the Word. Don't cancel out time spent in the Word of God. But understand, it's not the head knowledge, even of the Word of God, it's not the head knowledge that's going to get you there. It's faith. Faith at the heart level. His name is Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You can't learn wisdom, but you can receive it by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. You want to know Him? Do you really want to know Jesus? He's a prayer away. Let's bow. Lord, I am so amazed that for all our studying, In all our contemplation and all our digging into the Scripture, we keep coming right back here. We keep coming right back to You, Jesus. You alone have the words of eternal life. You alone are the answer. May we not pursue a different Jesus, a different faith. May we, Lord, not be drawn to work to ascend or Father to wallow in the depths may we simply be right here with you Jesus knowing you loving you walking with you seeking to understand your character as described by your word listening to your voice as you speak truth and wisdom to us and Lord this morning I know there are many of my brothers and sisters here Christians, followers, believers in You who, like me, have gone both directions. We've tried really hard to find the answers in good religious work. And we've tossed that out and tried to find the answers in in feeling and, and emotion. And here we are right back with You, Jesus, just saying, we want to know You. We want to walk with You. I want to be close to You. Lord, I want to be close to You like I'm close to my wife or my children or my friends. I want to, I just want relationship with You. I want to talk to You about what's on my heart. I want to hear what's on Your heart. And, and, and I want to be led by You. Jesus, I, I want You to define my Christian life, not me. And I pray this for our fellowship, for this body, that we will increasingly be seen as a people who are defined by Jesus. When people see us, like like with Peter and John, they would see us and say, oh, these people have been with Jesus. 
And Father, I pray for those who may be sitting here right now who aren't even sure about You, Lord. Who are trying to figure You out. And I I pray, Lord, would You pour faith into the cracks of their hearts. Maybe today for the first time, help someone to say, I believe in Jesus, the Christ, Son of the living God. What is Your name? Your name is Jesus. And we praise You and we love You. In Jesus' name, Amen.